0: And if you would turn to Psalm 110. We've been learning to live in the Psalms. I hope you are. And I would encourage you, of course, we always encourage you to be regularly in the Word, daily reading the Word yourself, praying the Word, thinking the Word, singing the Word. Even and perhaps especially when it's been one of those days and you just haven't gotten to the regular reading or meditating on the Word that you would like to or that you aspire to, let I me mean, encourage you before you shut your eyes that day. Open the Psalms and read. Do, I mean, let that be your bare minimum. Just, just say that bare minimum. <laughs> if I get nothing else, I'm going to meet God in the Psalms, and then, uh, then expand from there. Psalm 110. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord. Sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning the dew of your youth shall be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Now, Lord, open our minds and hearts to Your Sovereign Majesty through this psalm written for our ears, written to shape our minds and our views of the world, life, and eternity with Christ on the throne. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This psalm is about Christ. Now, there's a way in which nearly every psalm can point us to Christ, but I mean specifically, explicitly, this psalm is about Christ, the Messiah King, and His final victory over all the forces of evil forever. We know that because Jesus Himself tells us this psalm is about hymns. Luke chapter 20, verse 41, one of many places, He says to those who are opposing Him, how can they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This psalm is about Christ. Peter later confirms that in Acts 2.34-36 to when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he says to those assembled, David is not the one who ascended to the heavens, but David himself says, then he quotes this psalm, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he says, Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made... This Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. This psalm is about Christ and his resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand with all authority, from which one day he will return, from which he saves those who trust him, and will return in final triumph to the earth. This psalm is about Christ. And that's what we want to look at this morning here in Psalm 110. The triumph of Of our king. So let's begin in verses 1, 2, and 3 with this enthronement. Christ, our king, takes his throne. In verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The opening words are significant. Literally, what they say is an oracle of Yahweh to Adonai, my Lord. Uh, Make sure you see that these are two different words for Lord. One in in all caps in many of your Bibles, the other in capital with small letters. Yahweh is speaking to my Lord. But it's an oracle. What is an oracle? An oracle is a divine utterance. Um, and, And this word for divine utterance is used only here in the Psalms, nowhere else, but where it is found in abundance is in the prophecies, especially of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. This is our first clue as we read this psalm that it is indeed a prophecy. It's a royal psalm written about a coming king and his enthronement, but the king here is not David. The king, as verse 1 says, is David's Lord. Now, Now think of that. The Lord, again notice the all caps, this is Yahweh speaking, this is Israel's covenant God making a proclamation... But to whom does he make that proclamation? Not to David. As David writes this down, he says, he is talking to the one that I myself call Lord. Adonai in Hebrew is a title. My Lord, my Master, the one before whom I submit. Wait a minute, David... You're the master of Israel. You're the king of this nation. No, no, no. David says, There is coming one who is greater than I. So David here takes up the role of a prophet. Uh, Acts 20 verse 30 in fact says David was a prophet. And David in the role of prophet tells us about the coming Christ. What does he tell us? Notice first, he tells us that Christ is the Lord who takes heaven's throne in this psalm. So this is an enthronement scene. It pictures that day that God the Father says to God the Son, come sit up here with Me on My throne. Sit at My right hand means come rule with Me. Come share My power and authority here on the throne. Now, who could ever do such a thing? Who could do such a thing? Well, certainly no man is capable of that. No, no, only one who is destined for this throne, only one who is God become man and therefore born to take this throne can answer this call. And maybe somewhere in the back of your mind the wheels are turning and you remember what the angel told Mary the day he proclaimed the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 1, verse 31 He said to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. This throne. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there shall be no end. That's the scene we're seeing in this psalm. And so... When Christ completed His earthly work, died and rose again, where did He go? After the resurrection, where did He go? Oh yeah, He ascended into heaven. We just said that in the confession. But He ascended into the heaven to do what? I mean, what do you imagine Jesus is doing in heaven right now? Just sitting around, waiting, passing the time? No! No! He is reigning from this throne which the Father gave Him. Hebrews 10, 12, and 13. When Christ had offered for one time a single offering for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until His enemies should be made His footstool. And when did that happen? The moment Jesus ascended. And so what time frame are we talking about for this enthronement? When is Christ enthroned? Answer, right now He is enthroned. Right now, at this very moment, Christ the Son reigns from the Father's throne. Dear one, if you're in Christ, your whole salvation is tied to this. Your security is anchored to this that Christ reigns as Lord from the throne of the universe, and from that throne, He will ensure that every promise He has ever made is kept to every one of those who are His subject. He is Lord, He is Lord, He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. That's a dancing verse. And my salvation is anchored to this fact. We we don't think enough of what is called the session of Christ. Session is a theological term that means that He is seated right now on that throne. Again, you just confessed it in the Apostles' Creed. So the Father says, Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Meaning what? You reign here with me until the work is completely finished. Not the work of salvation, that is finished, we know that. But the work of putting down every enemy, every resistance, everything that stands against the authority of God will fall. You sit here till that's done. Huh. A little trivia, I threw this out on Rockport News. If you're ever asked what Old Testament passage is quoted in the New Testament more than any other, what's your answer? Psalm 110. You can cut me in on whatever you win at trivia. Some 24 times, this psalm is quoted or alluded to directly in the New Testament. Why? Because the writers of the New Testament and the inspiration of the Spirit saw the significance of this psalm. One of those places where this psalm is quoted is by Paul in First Corinthians 15:25 to 27. And again, speaking of Jesus, He says He must reign until all His enemies are put under His feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. Dear one, Christ reigns. Take heart in that. In the midst of this crazy, bizarre world when you think it's out of control. Christ and He will continue to reign until every enemy is put down. Second, Christ is ruling now, we're told, in mighty power. Look at verse 2. The Lord, there's all the caps again, there's Yahweh, God the Father, sends forth from scepter, now speaking to Jesus, sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter. And then He commands, rule in the midst of... Of Your enemies, notice the mention of this scepter. what is a scepter? A scepter is a ruler 's staff. it is the the symbol of the king's absolute authority you 've seen these ancient pictures of kings standing there holding a golden rod or maybe even uh, in the coronation in London the holding a golden rod that golden rod that sceptre is an, a picture, a symbol of the king's authority. It is a symbol of the king's right to rule with Absolute power. Do you remember what Jesus said to His disciples just before He ascended back to the Father's right hand? Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. That's the scepter. The scepter is the symbol of Christ's all authority. The point here is that not only does Christ have all authority, but He is exercising that authority right now even as we speak. Notice what the Father tells Him at the end of verse 2 as He hands Him this scepter. It's a command. He says, rule in the midst of your enemies. Yeah, they're still out there. We haven't put them all down yet. As Hebrews says, we, haven't, we don't yet see His perfect dominion, but you rule, son. You take that scepter and you begin to rule. Take your rightful authority and put it to work, bringing this rebel world back under our dominion. Do you understand? That's the work that began that day in Jerusalem when Jesus sent His disciples out to preach the Gospel. Matthew 28 again. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Therefore, disciples... Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so church, listen, as we go out preaching the gospel, the scepter of Christ's authority goes with us. This mission cannot fail. That's what it means. By the power of this gospel, nations are subdued, sinners bow the knee, and become sons, just like you did. And Christ's mighty rule is extended person by person, congregation by congregation, nation to nation, over the whole of the world. I don't care what your eschatology is, that's what's happening. It fits all of them (laughs) because it's Scripture. Isn't that exciting? And we're a part of this right now as we go out to preach the gospel in Christ's power. He is exercising His authority. Because third, we see here, Jesus the King is redeeming a people who will worship and serve Him gladly. Look at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Your people, he says. Christ has a people. Those whom He is redeeming. And what are they doing here? Notice, they are worshiping. This is us. You say, can I find myself in this psalm? Yeah, you're right here if you're in Christ. What does it say about us whom He has redeemed? Well, first of all, it tells us that we who belong to Christ are a people who offer our lives freely in service of worship to Him. Literally that first line in verse 3 says your people will offer themselves as free will offerings. Now, notice that. It's not that they're bringing him offerings. It's that they themselves are the offering they bring. Does that remind you of any verse in the New Testament? I hope your mind runs pretty quickly to Romans 12 verse 1 where Paul says, after explaining the Gospel so thoroughly, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, based on the mercies of God, the Gospel I've just presented to you, that you now, in response, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is your free will offering. Your body... Surrendered to Christ in a life of worship. Do you understand? Whoever you are, do you understand that when we come to Christ for salvation, we do so acknowledging Him as Lord of all, yielding our lives to Him as a living sacrifice? We say to Him, Lord, I'm not in charge anymore. You are. Everything that I am, everything that I own, everything that I have, it's yours. Oh, I hope you understand. There is no salvation apart from a full surrender to Christ. You don't get to get Jesus as Savior and make Him Lord later. That's one of those lies that evangelicalism has promoted that will send a lot of people to hell. You don't get to bargain. You don't get to say, well, this much, Lord, and no further. This much I'll give you, but you can't have that. I'll give you this corner, but you can't have that. You come to Christ. You don't come make Him Lord. You come to the One who is Lord and he asserts his sovereign rights. No Lord cannot be a part of the Christian's vocabulary. right? He is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Now I understand that doesn't mean our submission is perfect. Lord help us. If that's what it meant, we'd all be in trouble. But our submission is complete. In other words, that is your desire. That is your intention. That is what you are doing. Every time you draw near to Him, we offer our lives to Him as living sacrifices. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. Second, we who belong to Him, worship Him in holiness. Verse 3 continues and says that we offer these sacrifices of ourselves, this living sacrifice, freely. And then it says, in holy garments. Some dispute over how the best to translate this. King James says, in the beauties of holiness. Other translations say, arrayed in holy splendor. It's really a picture of God's people gathered together in worship, clothed in holiness like priests. Romans 12, 1 again ties in here as it says, we become holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the reason. Christ saved us is to make us his own. To make us a joyful, worshiping people who live our lives to the praise of his glory. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says, You, speaking to Christians, those who have been redeemed, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous life. That's who we are as Christians. That's what He's made of us. We are a holy people who belong to God. We are a, a, a people of holy praise. This is what he's, he's called us to be. This is what He's saved us to be. Oh, Christian, let that be who you are. Let that be who you understand that He is that he is working into you. This is what He's making me. A holy worshiper of God. A living sacrifice. Wholly devoted to Him. Third, he says that we who belong to Christ, we have been given resurrection lives in Him. Look at the end of verse 3. This is so rich. He says, um, holy garments, this is who we are, worshiping people. Then he says, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. You say, what? <laughs> it's poetic language. Womb of the morning, dew of youth. It's poetic language that is pointing to an eternal freshness, an ever-refreshing life, a, a resurrection life. And not just the resurrection we get one day, though we do get that, but this is the resurrection that is ours now in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is the very thing that's symbolized by baptism, right? Romans 6, verse 4, we were buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life is what is being pictured here. As we join... To Christ our King by faith, and we do so stepping into the morning light of eternity, born afresh and renewed forever young in Him. That's already begun for you. Now it's going to be perfected when He calls your name out of the grave, but this new life is already, that dynamic of eternal freshness and life is already at work in these mortal bodies of ours through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Asterix right there, whole nother sermon. But that's our destiny. That's the gift our King gives to those who belong to us, and He is reigning on His throne now to ensure that every gift He has promised will be delivered to those who trust Him. Which brings us into the second thing here. Christ It's not only our King who is reigning from the throne, but Christ is our High Priest who has accomplished a full salvation. Look at verse 4. The Lord, once again Yahweh is speaking, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is King and He is Priest. Now you probably know that at the heart of Israel's special relationship with God, there were two primary offices. Do you remember them? There were the kings, of course, like David, who ruled the nation, who protected the nation, who led them in obedience to God, or at least that's what they were supposed to do. And there were the priests, who led them spiritually, who prayed for them, who offered up sacrifices for their sins. And then later comes the prophets, but the prophets were largely a response to the failure of the kings and priests. But these two primary offices, priests and kings, and they were separate offices. The king could not be a priest. The priest could not be a king. That's one of the reasons we know this psalm is not about David, because David himself never could be a priest. But this Messiah king, David's Lord, combines these two offices in his one holy person. Notice again, it's it's Yahweh who speaks, and not just speaks, notice that. This is stronger. He swears an oath. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. What's that about? It's about you knowing this is a settled issue. This is done. This is secure. This is absolutely certain. Hebrews 6.17 speaks of this certainty when it says, so that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, such you and me, the unchangeable character of His purpose in our salvation, He guaranteed it with an oath. This oath, this promise, is meant for the ears of the redeemed. Why? Well, because... Those past priests in the Old Testament failed. Think of Eli in 1 Samuel. Because of his failure as a priest, God warned him that he was going to take the priesthood away from him and give it to someone faithful. A failed priest can do you no good, but this priest, Christ, can never fail. We have God's oath on that. God who cannot lie, Hebrews was on to say. And so he says to Jesus, you're the priest who stands forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now what's the point of that? Why is this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek? Not Levi. I thought the priests in Israel were from Levi. In fact, that was true, right? Remember... Only someone from the tribe of Levi could be a priest under the old covenant law of Moses. That was very clear. And Jesus, as Hebrews remind us, is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. That's actually his connection to David and to David's throne. But he has no connection whatsoever to Levi and the priesthood. So how could he ever become a priest and offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins? Oh, that's where this oath comes in. Verse 4. The priesthood of Christ to which our salvation is anchored is itself anchored to something far older and much deeper than any Levitical priesthood ever had been under the law. It is anchored to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Okay, who's Melchizedek? Some of you know, some of you aren't sure. Who is Melchizedek? We first meet him as we're reading. hope you're reading through the Bible regularly, paying attention to see what's happening as it unfolds. We first meet Melchizedek in the story of Abraham way back in Genesis 14. I'll just read that section. Genesis 14, 18-20 for later study, if you want it. After, After Abraham had defeated a coalition of kings and was returning home, these kings had invaded the Promised Land. They were a threat. To the promise, so it seemed, that God had given to give Abraham and his descendants this land, this place from which God was going to work and bring salvation. Abraham went out, he defeated these kings. On his way back, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Boy, there's a symbol we won't even go into. Who was he? He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said to him, "...Blessed be Abram by God, Most High, Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God, Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand." And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Strange story. Who is this man? Well, whoever he is, we're told that he is the priest of God, Most High. The first priest mentioned in the Bible... We know very little about him directly. Even his name, Melchizedek, is not his name. It's a title. It means King of Righteousness. And he rules over a city called Salem, which in Hebrew is peace. He's the King of Peace. And he just shows up out of nowhere in the story. Hebrews 7, 3 grabs hold of that fact of his sudden appearance and says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues as a priest forever. It's a picture of Christ. It's a beautiful picture of Christ. And so when Abram meets him for the first time, he then does something really strange and unexpected. Abram submits to him. Abram acknowledges Melchizedek's greater authority by paying a tithe to him. That's an act of submission. And then he receives a blessing from him. Again, Hebrews remind us that is an act of submission. It is him saying, you're greater than me. And God says, that's the priesthood I'm giving my son. This older, deeper priesthood that springs from eternity directly from the hand of God so that Abraham had to bow and acknowledge... He is Lord. Okay, what's the point? Nice history lesson, Pastor. What's the point? Why should this matter to us? Well, listen to Hebrews six, seventeen through twenty. Hebrews five, six, and seven are the interpretation of this whole deal with Melchizedek. Hebrews six, seventeen says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge to Him might have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. We have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the secret place, into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as our forerunner, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Don't get lost in all the clutter of words and images there. Here's the point. By combining these two offices of high priest and king in His one holy person, Christ is able to give us a full assurance. And as I say, about a quarter of the book of Hebrews is devoted to explaining this verse to make that clear to us. For example, uh, Hebrews 7 again, after quoting this verse, says in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant. Those former priests were many in number because they were prevented uh, by death from continuing in office, but He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Well, put that together in your rhyme. Not only is Christ reigning right now as king, but he is interceding right now as our priest. Why? To give us an assured salvation that is firmly anchored in his completed sacrifice on our behalf. Hebrews Again, Hebrews 5 22 to 25. This makes Jesus, that's the wrong one, 20, verse 5 to 9, chapter 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You need to know more about this Melchizedek business. (laughs) So we see Christ exalted as king, reigning in heaven, interceding as priest to guarantee our final salvation as we put our trust in him. Oh, would you not put your trust in him? And there's one more thing we have to hit because the rest of this psalm reminds us that not everyone will trust Him. Not all will bow the knee willingly. That brings us then to this third thing. Our High Priest and King will return to claim His final victory over all this world. Verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Beginning here, the focus of this psalm shifts from what Christ has done to what He will do. He who came the first time to save will come again to judge this rebel world and end evil's reign forever. So this this story doesn't end with Christ ascended to the throne. It ends with Christ's return in glory. As one commentator said, here the psalm moves from the theme of Hebrews to the theme of Revelation. As our high priest... Our king puts on his armor and goes to war to claim his final victory. Again, verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. That is, the Lord Yahweh, even though it's little O, little R, little D, uh, it's the the vowel pointing, it's a weird deal. Uh, It was said basically, so the one who's the master now, it's Yahweh himself. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is one of those grisly verses. This is a grisly scene. But before you back off from it and say, that's not my Jesus. Slinging a hammer and crushing skulls, that's not my Jesus. Before you sin and say that, Let me remind you of something very important here. Remember that you and I, living right now, are living in a time of amazing grace. An amazing time of grace where Christ stands before the world with open arms every time the Gospel is preached and calls the world to repent and believe and come to Him and be saved. And listen, if you have never come to Christ... Through the hearing of the gospel, he is issuing that call to you, right? Hear his voice. Hear this call. Come to him while you're able. Because the point of this psalm is that that day of grace will soon be ended. And the scene just pivots here and shifts. To a time of judgment. Rather now than a humble seeking savior calling you to repent, now you will meet the judge coming in all his wrath. Revelation 19 picks up this theme and describes it in these words. Revelation 19 verse 11, John says, And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse there, the symbol of absolute victory. And the one seated on it is called Faithful and True. This is Christ. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems, crowns. And He has a name written that no one but Himself knows. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. They're sharing in His victory. And from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. There's the scepter. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh, He has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords." Can you see Psalm 110 in that description? Friend, that day is coming. Be warned. In fact, part of our job today as we proclaim the Gospel is to issue that warning to sinners. To tell rebel nations and kings that their days are numbered. Psalm 2 picks up that theme in Psalm chapter 2, verse 10. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. That means you bow before Him. You kiss Him lest He be angry and you perish on the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. That's what He is saying in these verses in Psalm 110. So just really quick, three things about that day that is coming as Christ returns. First of all, we're told that when Christ comes in wrath, no one will be able to stand against him. Again, verse 5 The Lord is at your right hand, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Shatter. Shatter! It is Christ who is coming, and when He comes, He comes to execute God's final judgment. Every king who ever opposed Him will be shattered. Every kingdom that has ever stood against Him will fall. Not one will be left standing. You talk about being on the right side of history, that's the right side of history to be on. And listen, friend, that is part of our message to the world. That judgment is coming. Don't be squeamish about the fact of His judgment. Because past generations only talked about judgment. Let's not be foolish and never talk about judgment. Tell them, keep standing against Jesus. Keep making war against Him and His truth. That is a battle you will never win. Be warned, O kings. Be warned, princes and presidents, prime ministers, despots, dictators, heads of states, senators, congressmen, that day is coming and if you continue to stand against Him and His kingdom, you will be crushed. You have been warned. Second, when Christ comes again, it will be for judgment. Verse 6, He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. It is Christ who comes to execute God's final judgment. Christ Himself will do this so that every king who has ever tried to oppose Him will be shattered. All authority and power that belongs to Christ will be exercised on that day of judgment. We heard that in our study of John. John 5.22 Jesus said the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Paul later in 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That is what is in view here. That is the day that is coming upon all people and all nations. The people of China will be there on that day of judgment. The people of Russia, and Saudi Arabia, and North Korea, North, North, North Korea, and oh by the way, America. Every sin will be exposed. Every lie will be. Unmasked, every sexual deviancy will be judged, every double cross, every harsh word and impure thought, all abuse and hatred, all will be exposed, and the books will be open, and every person will be judged. And who can stand in that judgment? Only those who know Christ as Redeemer. Amen. For on that day, this is the third thing, on that day all sin and evil will be put down forever. Last line in verse 6 and he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Chiefs, heads of state. No, no, it's actually more than that. The word chief is actually the word head, and it's singular. Literally, and I think, uh, where's Jason? LSB, that's your favorite translation these days. I think it got it just right. He will crush the head that is over the wide earth. What head then is he talking about? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a clear reference to Genesis 3.15, the very first Gospel, when we are told that in the end, Christ will crush the serpent's head. Satan and all his works and all his allies will be vanquished forever. And once and for all, evil will be put down and righteousness exalted forever. What a day! And so that finally, verse 7 says, And He will drink from the brook by the way, the very way He has opened up into the heavenlies themselves. And therefore, He will lift up His head. This is Christ rejoicing in and enjoying His final victory, refreshing Himself and sharing His joy of victory with us. I mean, we're out of time, but just look at it. He will drink from the brook. Oh, that refreshing stream of Psalm 23 where He leads us beside those quiet waters. He will lift up His head. That's a symbol of great rejoicing, right? When you rejoice, you lift your head and you shout, We've won! And He will reign forever. And we will join Him in that song portrayed in Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a a kingdom and priests to our God. See, He's the King, He's the High Priest, and in Him we become uh, part of the kingdom and we become priests who worship Him. Kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever." That is the celebration you and I are invited to join in as we come to Christ by faith. To understand He is our King who reigns. He is our priest who surely saves. And He is our warrior who wins the victory that we get to share. Let me just close with this quote. Alan Ross, in his commentary, said this. I just... Couldn't word it better. I'll just close with him. He says this: Passages like this offer hope and comfort to believers, because no matter how evil or troubling the world might appear, the final outcome is certain. Those who believe in Jesus, the Messiah, and who have been sanctified by His sacrificial blood have nothing to fear. They will be with Him as He comes to rule on earth and. Uh, They will be like the dew that suddenly appears in the morning when the shadows flee away and the sun of righteousness rises with healing in its wings. Because of that hope, believers should comfort and encourage one another. Purify themselves to be clothed in white linen, which are the righteous acts of the saints, Revelation 19. And third, be about the work of the kingdom, obeying the king, serving the king, and extending uh, his kingdom to the people of the world. Amen indeed. Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of the confusion and craziness of this world, in the midst even of our own failures and sins, we look up and we see Christ in His glory enthroned and reigning for our ultimate good in Him. The Lamb who was slain standing upon the throne. What a picture John gives in Revelation of these two aspects of Christ drawn together. Our King and our Priest. Oh Father, show us this week that we have a King. Help us to live in submission to Him. Show us that we have a Priest who has... Finish the sacrifice and let us come that our sins may be washed clean. And remind us that we have a mighty warrior who cannot be defeated. And so the victory that we feared could slip through our fingers will never slip through His as we rest all by faith in Him. Thank You for this psalm. Thank You for this assurance. Help us live now in light of it by faith. And anyone who is not yours, who is not standing on the right side of eternity by faith in Christ, even now call them out through repentance and faith to bow the knee and to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And to receive what only Christ can give. In His name we pray. Amen.